0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Lorraine, I've um, I've started the downsizing mission. I mean, it's going to be a long process. we're not talking moving house just yet but the kettle broke and I bought a new kettle but I bought a half kettle (laughs) because there's only really me and Neil and um every time you boil a kettle you end up boiling like what two liters of water so I'm saving electricity and I'm boiling less water and I'm having a smaller kettle is that a slippery slope that's like
1: a room in the home
0: isn't it where you just have your own
1: kettle beside your bed Trish It's like the borrowers. You're becoming one of the borrowers. I know, exactly. You're not going to get a cup of tea when you come to my house, is basically what you're saying, because you can only make two.
0: That's true. I'd probably have to boil it. If I need to make a pot or two, I'd have to boil it a couple of times. Well, you'll have to get a spare bigger kettle, won't you? So you'll end up with two kettles
1: in your downsizing quest. I think there's got to be an easier way of doing this, Trish, rather than that. There must be. (laughs)
0: Oh, 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 oh. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hot house, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on
1: all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives
0: and your finances. Yes, we are. Ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Lorraine, I see you have been uh, seeking holiday advice again on the Facebook group. First Norway and now possibly a European beach trip, trip to a beach. I'm thinking that Cornwall might finally be getting a bit dull for you.
1: Don't be so blasphemous. How dare you speak of my Cornwall that way. I will never be parted from my lovely cur now, as we call it in Cornish. No, I tell you what is happening, Trish, is uh, rather like your small kettle. We have a smaller family now. We've downsized our half-pint family. We Only two of the four children are coming on holiday with us because the other two have left and they're off doing their thing. So the May half term is looking a little bit different from how it normally would. I'm a bit sad, but I'm a bit happy. And I asked the Facebook group about where to go. They've been very helpful. I'm, I might even consider Albania, Trish. Well, obviously, I have to find out where it is because I don't know where anything is.
0: No, of course, yes. Yeah, get your map out. But I hear I hear good things yes. about that.
1: You, though, you're all booked up, <laughs> aren't you, till of May 2028?
0: Organised within an inch of your life. Everything planned. I do like to plan, as you know. But I have to say, I'm very pleased. I mean, that's about the most advanced notice you've given me on a holiday for quite a while. (laughs) I have to say, because you are my work wife. Keep you on your toes. And it does get a bit confusing when you spring one on me at the last minute or change the dates. But I mean, we could barely turn our laptops on uh, and work the printer. So trying to manage our, we've got our digital work calendar. It's quite complex. I mean, we might as well be launching a space shuttle at NASA. That's how difficult it is for us. Anyway, it's nice to be looking ahead to sunnier days because it feels like spring is just around the corner, doesn't it? It is. And we've got a little spring thing, haven't we, to shake
1: off that meh feeling of winter. There are some places left on the postcards from Midlife Retreat. That's going to be a little holiday for you and me, isn't it? Uh, We'll be resting, rejuvenating and re-energising with some fabulous experts and guests from the 15th to the 17th of March. Lovely weekend. At the Samaritz Hotel in Cornwall, I'm going to get my Cornish fix then. It'd be really, really lovely. We've got workshops, treatments, cold water swimming and friendship walks, Trish, which we just invented, haven't we? Friendship walks. <laughs> yes, we've
0: made that name up. Yeah, we like that.
1: I think that's what midlife women do a lot of. All you have to do if you want to come to our rest, rejuvenating and re-energising retreat is pop onto the Samaritz Hotel website. Whole itinerary is there. All the booking details are there. We've got a somatic movement coach. She's coming to help calm your nervous system. We've got an award-winning midlife chef. And we've got a Sunday Times best selling author, a woman who wrote uh, How to Feel Better, lovely Cathy Rensenbrink. It's very exciting. I can't wait to get there. And we know, don't we, Trish, that one of our podcast gang, one of our lovely family, is flying from America for our retreat.
0: I mean, how fabulous is that? I know, crossing the Atlantic. <laughs> it's quite impressive, isn't it? I think it might be. It's not just because Cornwall is lovely, obviously. I think it's because we have the allure, as Miranda Hart used to say. I like that word. I was just remembering it, the allure. <laughs> uh, although I'm not sure your dry robes and cold water swimming outfits count as alluring. I mean, are you going to be wearing that swimming at the neoprene one with the Flaps, ear flaps, chin strap, thingammy me. You're obsessed with that, aren't you? My son says it's Morag's bonnet. Oh.
1: <laughs> he calls you Morag, doesn't he? he calls me Morag, he said. Oh. Morag's got her bonnet on again. <laughs> no, don't diss my neoprene hat. You're a little bit feisty this morning. What with all your fizzing around with your changing your ears, plugs and glasses and everything? Oh, I know. God, yeah, because that's been a bit of a faff. Is the sap rising, Trish? Is it a spring
0: thing? <laughs> My sap is rising. Yes, I think it is. I think it's because I've made it through dry January, tick, frugal February, and now the sunny uplands of spring and summer await. What do you mean by frugal February? I quite like, is that a thing? Is that a thing? Well, I'm
1: making it a thing. I'm making it a thing, definitely. We're trying not to spend money up because we're broke from Christmas, especially those of us who went to Norway. (laughs) Um, we are nearly out the other side. Um, and today's episode, though, we are going to spend a little bit of money now. Frugal February is coming to an end. We've got three cheery spring things to buy, haven't we, on our newly allowed shopping list. We'll be jibber jabbering about those. And then we're going to be meeting this week's special guest, GP and TV medic, Dr. Nigat Arif. She's going to answer all the important health questions. And talk to us about why she's breaking cultural taboos to ensure every woman in the UK, whatever their background, can get the medical health they need. I can't wait to meet her.
0: Yes, we love Nigat. Um, she's doing amazing work. But just quickly back to frugal February, because now we've made it a thing. You've invented it. I oh, think we've invented, invented proud of frugal it. February, dry January, frugal February. But it does have its funny side because you know how you end up doing things like you try to run down the freezer and use up all the tins at the back of the food cupboard. Well, that's what I do. I don't know any of those things. I don't understand
1: freezing. I don't, I'm don't. i very undomesticated. I'm like Margot. I just wait for my people to do it for me.
0: Well, exactly. But the thing is, you've got to clear out the cupboards. So February, boring February is the time to do it. So um, we had a great post on the Facebook group from Lorna who told us about playing freezer roulette. (laughs) Um, You know (laughs) because you you can't either Well you won't know because you don't do it But you either can't read what you've written on the freezer bag Or you didn't bother What you label it before you freeze it Exactly you write on the bag what it is who has time to do that? Oh, but then it saves you cooking something else further down the line. It's all about the batch cooking coming up on the show in a couple of weeks. It's coming up on the show because I know I've got to get my head around it, yeah. You've got to get your head around that. But, you know, it sort of smears off you can't read it or you didn't write it in the first place. This is what I do. I think, oh, I it's brown and lumpy. I'll know that that's spaghetti bolognese, of course. And then, of course, you don't because it's all brown and lumpy, all the stuff. Um, <laughs> anyway, Lorna says... I'm playing freezer lottery tonight. Anyone else joining in? We just hope it's savory raspberry sauce with leftover chicken. <laughs> Might be too
1: out there for the family. Well, that is the risk. That does sound pretty unpleasant. But it does sound that like it's going to be a common mistake, isn't it? Virginia posted on that thread as well. She she said um, her last go at freezer lottery turned out to be stewed rhubarb rather than bolognese, which is what it looked like. But it went really well with the pasta. Who's to say you have to have rhubarb for pudding anyway? What are the rules? And Susan said, and this might be the worst one. Some years ago, I made a crostini using spray oil to crisp them up, took them to a party, and everyone said they had quite a bite. Turned
0: out I had sprayed them with insect repellent. Oh, dear. But <laughs> it's not a freezer lottery roulette, but it's a pretty good one. So thank you very much for that one, Susan. And I have to say, I think I'd take insect repellent over this one from Cheryl who added that her husband's burger turned out to be black pudding. Now, vegetarians, the idea of black pudding... just frozen blood, isn't it? Black pudding. (laughs) Pig's blood, frozen. The idea of having that lurking in the freezer, but I have to say we have got some of that lurking in a freezer. Uh, Neil's a bit partial. He's also got an enormous haggis (laughs) for some reason. Taking up about half a drawer in the freezer is very annoying, the haggis. I've got to say what my son always says. Whenever he
1: hears a funny phrase like that, he says, you're an enormous haggis. Oh, <laughs> you say, oh for God's sake, who's
0: turned this blah, 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 blah. He says, you're a blah, 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 blah. So oh. you're an enormous haggis. I think that's the start of gaslighting. That's another story. Is it different one? <laughs> it's a different one. We'll go there another time.
1: Well, you know what you could do with that disgusting haggis? You yes. could leave it out for... Um, the podcat Margot to munch on. Oh, yes. She'd blow up like a balloon, wouldn't she? That might cheer me up. I must stop being so cruel to that cat. You Maybe must. that's what I should do. Margot March, not frugal February. I'll have Margot March. I'll be kind to Margot. We'll give it a go.
0: Let's do it. Right. I'm ready for some cheery spring things we've chosen three each haven't we lovely little things that we might buy just to have a little jolly springtime what's first on your list then Lorraine I've gone back to Cornwall oh of course (laughs) funny that (laughs) funny that because I do like to
1: support local businesses but I found I was getting some gifts uh, for somebody Suddy Nora soaps as in Bloody Nora. <laughs> oh, I like that name. Yes, very good. Suddy Nora, little Cornish brand. They do really, really delightful, I like to use that word, tiny soaps. The travel ones are only one they They're gorgeous. They're all natural. They've got no chemicals in. But they do this little gift set for £17 and you get six unwrapped, handmade Cornish soaps with little bits of lavender, just absolutely adorable. It was set up by local lady Sarah. Uh, and it was inspired by the coastline and it's sort of based on that and she's had eczema and her daughter has a dairy allergy and she'd studied previously before she was in business anatomy and physiology so she just started to look at how she can make soap for the family that weren't going to cause any problems for them and it took us sort of 10 years to get it all together but it's a really lovely website with really adorable little soaps that are really good for you smell delightful and make wonderful presents and benefit a Cornish lady. So I'm very excited about it. She also does Flaming Nora as opposed to Suddy Nora, and they are soy wax candles.
0: I like that. That's very good. Pun on the name, isn't it? Very clever. Oh, well, I'll be checking that out. Gift ideas. That's always good. Birthday gifts for lovely friends. Titillating Trish you could launch. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> for your vests, for your
0: warming vests. My vests. Titillating yes. Trish's Warming Vests. Oh, there you go. You should work in marketing and branding. Yes, you should. Proper job. <laughs> right. I don't know which one to start with. They're quite different mine. I think I'll go I'll go a bit more glamorous. You know I'm a bit boring with my jewellery, very kind of understated. I've minimalist. Decided. minimalist. Um, I've decided I need to get a bit more glitzy, a bit more adventurous with my jewellery. Now, I'm not... prue No, we're not going prue-leaf. No, we're not going big, jazzy, huge things. But I have found uh, a designer. The, well, the brand's called Chalk, Chalk Jewellery. And it's designed by a lovely young woman called Malika Carr. And she's an architect turned designer. And she... She does this really lovely, sophisticated, fashionable jewellery, but everything that involves architectural elements, because she's there's really interesting videos on her site about how she looks at buildings as an architect and how that translates into jewellery. And um, we've got some lovely ladies already uh, wearing it. Laura Mavula and uh, Trini, Trini Woodall, our friend. Oh, our Trini. Yes. Now, of course, they've been wearing, because they can, huge, big, jazzy, Earrings. I have to have slightly smaller ones. Like your kettle. (laughs) Why my kettle? (laughs) Exactly. But a smaller version of everything for Trish. Yes. yeah, Scale it down. Scale it down. So um, she's got these amazing, they're called Mayan hoops in um, silver and mint enamel, which are about £150. And they're based on Frank Lloyd Wright design, which I really like because I visited a Frank Lloyd Wright house when I was in America once. Yeah. So I really like those, putting those on my birthday list. But she's got like lovely little stud earrings that start from £25. So like you, it's just that thing of trying to support women, doing their own brands, being female entrepreneurs. Um, so that's kind of where I'm looking to. So you're not going to be getting any massive, big, jazzy, colourful earrings on me. Don't worry about that. But, but bigger than normal. Bigger than normal. A Bit more statementy than normal. But I won't, uh, you wouldn't be able to wear them with your swimming hat. More eggs bonnet, no. Right, next, number two for you. Right,
1: well, I've moved from Flaming Nora Candles to the Flaming Flower and I'm not sure how you say this, of the Anthurium. So this is a plant. So I had a little moment when, uh, obviously, when you do your frugal February spring clean and you walk around and you think, what will brighten up this room that hasn't been decorated for 4,000 years? and ruined by the children dragging their bags along the walls and all of those things, I will buy some flowers. And then I thought, well, that's a bit expensive, you know, frugal February, buying flowers every week, even though they're very affordable in Tesco's. And then I thought, is it sustainable if they're that affordable? Are they being flown in? Blah, 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 blah. Went all the way around in my head. And then I thought, you know what, I'll just get a really vibrant plant. So I went to look for something that maybe you would have on the set of White Lotus. (laughs) Oh, Okay. And I found a flaming flower of the anthurium, which is what it's a little bit sort of, I don't know. I'm going to say sexual. I don't know why I'm saying that. It's like a lily, but it's really bright red. It's really gorgeous. Um, yeah. And I've just bought a big one. It was £18. Patch plants do them as well, if you want to do them. It's bright red, £18, is about the same as three tulip bouquets from Tesco's. It's huge. It's gorgeous. Got a really nice pot that I dug out of the back of the shed to put it in. Oh, nice. And every time I walk into the kitchen, I think, oh, what's that gorgeous thing in the corner there? (laughs) So that's
0: my cheery spring thing. But it's got to be bright. Yes. But the fly in the ointment of this, of course, is that we both have poison fingers, don't we? So. So we're going to be checking in on the flaming flower of the Anthurium to see how it's going over the next few weeks.
1: I did read the thing this time, you know, I read the instructions. Don't overwater. I think that's been my mistake, maybe in the past overwatering. It just looks very hopeful and vibrant and sexy and gorgeous. I just don't think it can die. It's too glamorous to go, Trish.
0: My mother-in-law brought me a really beautiful indoor cyclamen at Christmas. and. Absolutely gorgeous, loads of flowers, loads of buds on it, and she's amazing at plants. I mean, the day she what left. It? I mean, within a week. Trying to find a way out. <laughs> it was starting, it was, it's finding a way out. Ringing dignitas, trying to leave. I can't tell her. I can't bring myself to tell her. It's awful. I've, I mean, i don't know what I've done. I've even got a friend who works in the garden centre, and she didn't know, so I thought, well, if she doesn't know, she said, they're very difficult, those plants. So that, that gave me some hope. Continuing on with the sort of Nature theme. I've gone a bit Spring Watch, because obviously that's our favourite springtime show. I've gone a bit Spring Watch. Solitary beehive. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Sounds like a trend hair trend. Oh
1: the <laughs> big old hair beehive. Yes. Solitary beehive, yeah. Look at that
0: woman in the crowd. She's a solitary beehive in the crowd. Oh my goodness. I had one of those once, but that's another story I'll tell you about. Anyway, I'm going to give you a little lesson. Guess how many species of bees there are in the UK? Well, not enough. But uh, <laughs> so we say 12? 250 species of bees. Wow. It's a lot, isn't it? Bumblebees, yeah. There are 24 bumblebee species and the bumblebees are solitary. So you know you always think of like bees being in hives. You think all the bees, that go, they're in a... They're not. Those big fat ones that you see flying around the garden, they would live on their own. Lonely bees. Someone's bought them a small kettle and they've given up hope and gone off on their own. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Something like that. But no, you can buy a little solitary beehive. It's like a little wooden... looks like a little birdie house, but it's got all these holes and things. But don't you need a queen for the honey? I think they don't make honey, these ones. They pollinate. So you've got the honeybees... That are the ones that are in the hives making the honey. And then you've got the bumblebees that are just doing all good works, pollinating, flying around your garden, looking really pretty. So this little box costs about £30. You can buy it from uh, the Woodland Trust and also Bumblebee Conservation Trust. What does it look like? Well, it looks like a little birdhouse, but with more holes in it. They've been designed to attract non-swarming bees. I can give you a couple of names. The red mason bee, the leaf cutter bee... And um, they're really nice to have in your garden because it's a little home for your bees. And the roof section flip, flips up and there's a perspex kind of covered tray. So you can have a little little look inside and see what it's doing and monitoring its larvae activity and development, things like that. Isn't that nice? There's your spring watch moment. I'm going to get my little 12-year-old Mabel that for her birthday in May. I think she'd love that.
1: Right. Third lovely thing. I'm back on my interiors because obviously... Frugal February. I've spent a lot of time looking out there. Well, I haven't been out, Trish, have I? I haven't been out. I've been at home. No, exactly. Nobody's been anywhere. No one's been anywhere. Um, and little things popping up on the internet because I was looking, you know, for nice things for the house. They're kind of crafted concept stores. It's a new trend. Ooh, okay. So they're people gathering stuff together that doesn't ne- isn't necessarily interiors, but it's a thing that might go with a thing, something they've seen on their travels. You've got to sort of find these websites, and then you get individual things that are not mass made or mass sold, like you might get in H and M. Knickknacks. Yes, a little bit of knickknacks. And I was looking for some cheer me up knickknacks. I do like a bit of art, as you know, Trish. Yes. And I was on Glassette, which is a lovely little website set up by Laura Jackson, who we know she's a journalist. She was she's been on telly a couple of times. She's a sort of doer upper of houses, but she's got a really nice eye. Her taste is lovely. And on Glasset, I was drawn to something called the Ley Lines
0: Prince, which is Cornish Studio again. Oh, God's sake, there's something. <laughs> You've got a sort of magnet, haven't you? Didn't know it, Trish, but
1: it's because it's um, it's ink drawings on paper and it's jellyfish and shells and things like that. But more importantly, the frames are really bright and colourful and They're gorgeous. They're £100 each, so they're kind of an investment and they're a a lovely present. But there's lots of other little prints on the site as well, and they start from around £15, but they're all really colourful. And then I noticed a new new trend, Trish, because obviously this is what, you know, this has been my job for years, spotting trends. Red stripes, they're coming up everywhere, and I love a red stripe. Red stripes on everything. Uh, while I was also pottering around, I noticed a great uh, Instagram account, which is one of pre-loved interior buys. And most of those pre-loved stuff for furniture and stuff like that is so ridiculously expensive, isn't it? And you don't know what you're buying if you don't know about that stuff. But this is all really lovely and affordable. And it's kept London K-E-P-T dot London on Instagram. They get nice things. They pop them up and you just buy them, buy them on Instagram. I had a little bamboo table I wanted to buy, but someone else got it before me was only 30 quid oh that's nice
0: is it like a vintage so you can
1: put your own stuff up there no it's not no it's it's curated it's a concept store it's curated yeah you don't want any old tat on there do you any of that rubbish up there (laughs) two pound fifty for a spare bra (laughs) never worn it's not that
0: oh no it's not that what have you got for me? What's your final thing? Well, I always like to see what's happening on the museum website shops. So I was having a little ponder at the V&A and I noticed these fabulous deck chairs, deck chairs and cushions actually by a company called the Raj Tent Club. And I thought, oh, I'll pop on and have a look at them on the old internet. And um, oh, I just love the website. It was all these kind of, you basically can hire or buy these amazing Maharaja tents for events like weddings, parties. There's loads of parasols, very sort of Indian themed, really beautiful stuff. And I was like, oh my goodness, if if I was getting married and had lots of money, I might do that. But they have a lovely homewares, furniture, Shop, online shop, vintage one off pieces, rugs, throws, that kind of thing, as well as these deck that they're doing with the VA and the cushions. And I particularly like they've got lots of lovely outdoor sofas little outdoor tables, because we're, we're thinking about going outdoors, aren't we, at this time of
1: years, Sitting outside. I should be coming to your garden for our little chats in the garden.
0: Yes, I'll be coming to your garden. We'll have full of red stripes in it, I expect. It will be. Your yes. new garden things. So, I really liked that, because it was founded by a designer called Clarissa Mitchell, who was living in Jodhpur, and she started to make decorative tents in partnership with the Maharaja, who was there. Um, so, lots of traditional Rajasthani designs employing lots people over there really interesting really liked that one so that's the Raj Tent Club and I think it's really great so that's a little jolly one to to end our cheery spring things (laughs)
1: it's time to invite you into the doctor's surgery as we meet one of the most exciting female medics we've ever had on the show dr nigat arif nigat is a gp specializing in women's health she started her media career in the most contrary way possible by taking to the youth obsessed tiktok to talk about the menopause Her smiley energy, positivity and astonishing ability to explain complex health issues simply caught the eye of telly bigwigs. And now Nigat is a resident doctor on BBC Breakfast and ITVs this morning. She has broken the mould for telly doctors as a hijab-wearing Muslim who isn't afraid of mentioning vaginal moisturisers while urging all women to carry out regular genital self-examinations on primetime telly. We all have a lot to thank Nigat for, not least her mantra for women of all backgrounds to find their voice when it comes to seeking treatment at the GPs. Nigat, 40, came to the UK from Pakistan aged nine. The daughter of an imman she excelled at school and became a GP in Buckinghamshire, working for the NHS for 16 years. She had an arranged marriage at 23 and is mum to three sons aged 13, 8 and 5. Dr Nigat is also an ambassador for well-being of women and was given the Prime Minister's Point of Light Award in 2023 in recognition of her work raising awareness for women's health issues. Today, we're going to be discussing her fantastically helpful new book, The Knowledge, Your Guide to Female Health, From Menstruation to Menopause. It really does cover everything you need to know about your mind and body. and we will be focusing on three specific areas with NIGAT, your periods, recurrent issues like UTIs, and perimenopause and menopause and HRT. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Dr. Arif. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I feel like this is three years in the making to try and get ourselves
2: organised. We're busy women.
1: We are, well, you particularly. So, you know, you're you're absolutely everywhere. First of all, I want to say thank you for the book, the knowledge. It is so helpful. I mean, it really is. It's just so, so helpful. I'm gifting it to everyone, giving a copy to my uh, daughters as well. I think we should begin with your work on the front line as a GP, treating women of all ages and all backgrounds. Now we hear from our listeners who are all midlife women, they find it hard to get what they want from their GP. It's a thing we hear again and again. So how do we, from the other side, make the most of our first visit to the GP when we're talking to them about what we're going through in midlife? What do we do right and what do we do wrong when we go to the surgery as women patients? Here
2: are my tips as a NHS GP that I know it's very hard to get an appointment with me, but I have like a five point plan. Number one is that as women, you know your body. So please start writing down your list of symptoms, regardless of how banal they are. Number two, when you phone the GP at the surgery, ask for someone who does women's health. That might be me. It might be a locum doctor that's come in that day. It actually might be the nurse that is in the surgery who's gone off and done her menopause training. Number four, when you book the appointment, ask for a double appointment and on the day, come with somebody who is able to advocate for you if you're just one of those individuals that can't advocate for themselves. Because I feel that it's such an easy word for us to advocate and band around, but not all people can do that, especially if English is not your first language. And then at the appointment, number four, when you're going through your symptoms, just have it as a differential diagnosis. I try and never get blinkered into thinking, oh, this is menopause, because the symptoms overlap with, say, underactive thyroid, overlap with, God forbid, sinister things like cancers, overlap with type 2 diabetes, depression. The overlapping of the symptoms is so vast that as a GP, we keep an open mind. And so on the first appointment, so that number four point, is that your GP should be ruling out all other diagnoses, or sort known as differentials. So telling you to go for a blood test, and it might be to rule that out or looking at tracking your symptoms even further and knowing your period history, if you know what it is, knowing your background of your family history, knowing what other past medical conditions that you might have, your height, your weight, all of those. I always say to my patients, don't expect HRT or a quick fix in the first consultation. And then number five there's that when you had that consultation and you thought to yourself, actually, that doctor got it, it's on your way out. Book a follow up appointment once you've had all your tests with the same doctor. Because at the moment, the way the NHS is structured is you as the patient are responsible for having your follow up and also the continuity of care. Because whenever you phone for an appointment, you'll be given whoever is available at that day or that time in the diary. But if you specifically want that doctor that does women's health for the continuity of your care to understand your symptoms, you're going to have to book that appointment, come back with your results and then go on your journey of how you manage your perimenopausal menopausal
0: symptoms. That's helpful. (laughs) It's probably (laughs) worth going straight on to talking about HRT because that is possibly one of the outcomes of this appointment that you've just talked about and this process you've talked about having with your GP. So, I mean, we've discussed this many times on the show. Um, You're so good at simplifying things. So, if you're just going to explain it, what are the forms of HRT and who can take it?
2: Firstly, there are two forms. One is systemic, so something that goes throughout your whole body, so systems, and that could be patches, gels, tablets. It could be a Marina coil that stops your periods and also gives you the progesterone component of hormone replacement therapy. And these little tablets called Utrogestan, which are progesterone as well. So there's two hormones that we give you systemically, something that goes throughout your whole body Estrogen, progesterone, and the third hormone that you might want to ask me about later is testosterone. And then we also have what's known as localized vaginal estrogens. So that's localized either tablets called pessaries, creams. There can be a ring version of that as well. And it's essentially localized estrogen that only works locally in the area that we're giving it. So your vulva, your vagina, and your bladder area. And the localized estrogen is so important because it, it helps prevent this condition called genitourinary syndrome or the menopause. And so those two modes of giving you HRT, systemically and localized, can be given together. Who can have HRT? In my experience, and I've been doing this for well over a decade, anyone that wants it, anyone that is safe enough to give it to, and we risk assessed each patient Um, Because literally what we're doing is replacing your hormones. So I get the question, but what about breast cancer, Dr. Nagat? I've heard systemic HRT causes breast cancer. So the first thing is we would always risk assess. HRT, I believe, should never be off the table. And if you're thinking about systemic HRT, like a patch, a gel, uh, or even tablets, then you have to look at all the other risk factors, such as family history of breast cancer, the person's risk of breast cancer, whether they've had any history of that before, uh, what their weight is like, whether they even have a choice, because choice is so important, whether they choose to go on hormone replacement therapy. So when we look, talk about localised vaginal oestrogen, the data is amazing when you look at that. It shows that actually the take-up in the bloodstream from localised oestrogen is so low or so small that actually it has no or negligible impact on your risk of breast cancer. So when it comes to localized vaginal estrogen, even those who've had breast cancer or have breast cancer are safe to have a form of it like DHEA or localized vaginal estrogen like Vagifem. And again, that's why I say the benefits of taking your hormones is so much better and it outweighs
1: the risks for the majority of my women and it should be on the table for them. So if we talk about localized vaginal estrogen this is not this is off prescription you can get that in the chemist can't you but if you take it at that low dose it's not something you would if i'm right in thinking you would prescribe for the other symptoms uh, like huge anxiety depression psychosis some of the other things that we get when our estrogen disappears just just i think we need to clarify that localized vaginal estrogen only
2: works for the local symptoms of Genitourinary syndrome of the menopause. So that's soreness, dryness, recurrent urinary tract infection, splitting of the vulval skin, difficulty having sex. It could be even sort of prolapse symptoms, urge incontinence, stress incontinence. So it will only look after the local symptoms that you're getting around the vulva and the bladder, which actually, do you know, in my data, in my clinical work, I would say about 80%. Of women will suffer this at some point in their menopausal journey, or even post because remember, women are living up till about 90 now. Mm. So we know that the lack of estrogen around your pelvic floor and that muscle around the bladder and those skin tissues around the vagina are going to become impacted, so therefore those symptoms will occur sometime in your postmenopausal lifetime, which is the longest warm place in your lifetime that you'll be in your transitions that we go through. Systemic HRT, absolutely. That's for your all other body symptoms. So that's your um hot flushes, night sweats, brain fog, irritability, anger, palpitations, anxiety, tearfulness. You might even get digestive symptoms, that stubborn weight loss that just doesn't go down at all. You might even get pins and needles, dry skin, loss of hair. And this is something that's really interesting because if you look at culturally at different cultures, Turkish women complain of tinnitus a lot more and also a burning roof sensation in their mouth. Japanese women complain of, say, aches and pains and shoulder aches. And funnily enough, this is the sort of thing that we find that we get lost with the all over body symptoms by saying, oh, it's hot flushes and night sweats. But if you look at sort of ethnic minority community women, particularly South Asian women or black women, hot flushes isn't what they complain about. They complain about mostly physical symptoms like aches and pains all over their body, something known as arthralgia. And that's what really got me going in my journey of
1: learning about menopause. And you can take vaginal oestrogen at the same time as your HRT that you would be prescribed? Absolutely. So if you are
2: taking systemic hormone replacement therapy, so that's your patches, your gels, your you know, et etc., you can take localised vaginal oestrogen. And the data shows probably about 25%. Or Women need both, but I actually think that's an underestimation <laughs> because in my clinics, I'm probably sort of at least at some point on a woman's journey, giving her both localised and systemic.
0: So we're, we're really delighted that so many women in our community seem to know so much more about HRT menopause, perimenopause due to your work, this whole community around it. But there are still some areas of confusion. And one of the big ones is how long do you take it for? So once you've got through, you've, got, you've had your menopause and you're feeling really good. Like for me, for example, I'm 56 now and I've been feeling great since I started taking HRT for five, six years. Do I just carry on? Do I think about coming off it? What do I do? What do women do at this stage?
2: The NICE guidance in 2019 was updated to answer this specific question. So it really simply, for anyone listening to this podcast, you can remain on systemic hormone replacement therapy and localised vaginal oestrogen for as long as necessary, as long as you need it, okay? Because we know that it's not just for management of symptoms. We know it's beyond that. So giving you systemic HRT and localised HRT not only prevents genital utero syndrome of the menopause, but it really is showing more and more data for your brain health, your heart health and your bone health. So giving you systemic HRT, I would say in your case, risk versus balance. So we always have to reassess by year on year, see whether it's still something that you are safe on and look at titrating the doses. But yes, a lot of my patients are staying on much, much later into their life. Topical vaginal oestrogen, I just say low dose twice weekly, say something like Badgy Femme or Gino over the counter, lifelong. That's what you can stay on. And I'll tell you a really quick story. About three weeks ago, I put a Marina Coil in in an 83 year old because she wants to carry on taking her low patch estrogen. I mean, she's 83, but honestly, this woman behaves like she's 30. She plays tennis three times a week. Um, She's so active. She's still working. And I think that we've got to get beyond age as being the sort of determinant of. This is how long you should stay on, five years.
1: Utter rubbish. You have to listen to the woman. She knows her body. For women who still have that fear around it, also to know that it does not it's not an overnight cure, is it? Some women react very badly to progesterone, for example. Some women take it and say this has made no difference at all because the dose is so low and they're fearful of going up. So you, you need to test, don't you, over a sort of three to six month period of what works for you when you first start.
2: If I have 10 women that come and see me and I start them on HRT, I would say about seven out of 10, I am going to be tweaking, tweaking, tweaking to the dose, the type, the way they take it, how they take it for about three years. So I, as much as I love hormone replacement therapy, when it comes to systemic hormone replacement therapy, I have that really frank conversation with a patient sitting in front of me. And I say to them, this is literally an investment because we don't have an exact science. I wish I could do a blood test that would say to me, right, Lorraine needs this much of estrogen and this much of progesterone. Oh, and she's not progesterone sensitive and she's not estrogen sensitive. This is her body composition in regards to fat, because we know that we produce sex hormones through our fat cells. We just don't have anything like that at the moment. We are so behind in all of that data. So it is an art rather than a science.
0: Can we ask you about UTIs? women really struggle with these and find themselves having more and more of them in in midlife. Can you explain why we get them and what do we do about it?
2: So I'm turning 40. I never got urinary tract infections apart from when I'm pregnant uh, or if I'm breastfeeding. And the reason I mention that is because when we're pregnant and we're breastfeeding, and then as we head into perimenopause, our estrogen levels are decreasing. But estrogen is so important for our bladder and our vulval health as well. And we are only recently on the precipice of understanding all of this, because we used to think for women, if they had GTIs, you just probably needed to wash better. And I honestly, it really infuriates me that those were the guidelines we were telling women. And also we after sex, when actually we need to be thinking about the role of estrogen. And essentially we've realized that one, Oestrogen is an immune modulator. So your immune system uses oestrogen. We have a lot of immune cells in and around our vulva and our vagina and our bladder. Oestrogen also helps boost up the lactobacilli and the coliforms in our vagina and vulva. Oestrogen, a third of it, all our immune system sits in our gut as well. And our gut is from the tip of our tongue all the way back to our anus. And because of our anatomy... Our back passage is very close to our vagina and also our urethra where we pee from. And we get lots of bugs in our back passage. So the most common one is going to be E. coli, but we can have proteases, klebsiella, all sorts of different bugs that sit around. So we need that protection from the back passage to our vulva and our vagina. And one of the ways is doing it is to keep that, what we say, turga, that um, strength and that ability to fight off all the infections. But as oestrogen decreases, we end up getting a rise in our pH, which obviously gives us more sort of that stingy cystitis feeling. It also means that the barrier is lost in regards to protection against bugs traveling around up the urethra and causing a urinary tract infection. That's why the number one thing we should be thinking about for women who've had a baby and they're breastfeeding is genitourinary syndrome or the
1: menopause. We have to think beyond urinary tract infection, would you offer it to younger women, women then? So, for example, because well, I've had UTI since I was 16, 15, 16, and I know lots of them, I do a lot of work with young teenage girls, lots of teenage girls, is that this has never come up. They're constantly still told, stay cleaner, go on the pill, you know, it's it's your fault you, and it's up to you to sort it out. So would younger women benefit from vaginal oestrogen or is that too early?
2: So I think urinary tract
1: infections is a
2: prime example of medicine misogyny. I <laughs> think Well, you know, men, if they ended up getting a willy infection every sort of couple (laughs) of months, we would be looking into what's happening with their hormone, you know, primarily testosterone. But we don't. We have never done that with women. And so we've left them to say, oh, but it's such a common thing. So in answer to your question, would I give it to younger women? Absolutely, I would. Especially women that I can definitely pinpoint that it's just around the time of their period, um, so it's cyclical. And also if they're breastfeeding, because if you think about it, prolactin, which is your other hormone to help you to breastfeed, increases. And so your oestrogen has to decrease, which is why when we're breastfeeding, we don't get that many periods either. If you're getting a recurrent itch and you're getting a UTI, then think beyond that this isn't thrash or this isn't because you're not clean and you need to think about oestrogen. So I'm doing a lot of work around trying to get this across to uh, midwives and postnatal care. When I do an eight-week check, I always ask about urinary tract infections, but I think that's because I'm just in tune with it. And the problem we have is that we don't have the guidelines that covers this. Um, in 2023, in October, and I beggars belief, NHS England rewrote the guidelines for urinary tract infections, bearing in mind that over 8,000 admissions are done across the whole of the UK, I think in a period of about a month post menopausal women so women over the age of 60 are higher risk of getting urinary tract infections postnatally women are more likely to get urinary tract infections they did not mention topical vaginal oestrogen once in the guidelines and you're just like guys this is such an easy win because one it has such low uptake in the bloodstream even if you're breastfeeding and you put a woman on low dose oestrogen the data shows that it doesn't go enough into her breast milk to affect the baby, so absolutely say. Also, you're giving her back her hormones, which she's lacking on, but we just have this huge fear of hormones over time that women have become scared of their own hormones as well. I'll let you into a really sort of interesting insight. If a man has prostate cancer and we remove his prostate and he's gone through all the treatment and he's been given the five-year all-clear, do you know what, even if it's prostate-related, testosterone-related prostate cancer. You know what we do after the five years that's clear? We give the man testosterone.
1: You get testosterone about if you say your libido is affected. It's, the, it's a really weird narrative that feels yes. like continual medical gaslighting, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. And therefore, I think that denying women, say, topical vaginal oestrogen, which time on time and now global data has shown is so effective at low dose and so safe. And even if you've got breast cancer and say you were on aromatase inhibitors, you can have DHEA, which is a derivative of, say, testosterone, it gets converted into low-dose oestrogen to treat the symptoms. It's barbaric to leave women without hormones for their vulva and their vagina and allow them to be exposed to, you know, genital urinary syndrome of the menopause, whereas we would never dream of doing that to men, never.
0: Can I just clarify, because obviously you can buy it over the counter, as we've said, at the pharmacy, but would you recommend that somebody goes to their GP first just to check everything out? We don't just want hordes of women going straight to the pharmacy now and buying over the counter unless they've actually spoken to a GP and had other things checked out.
2: No, I do want hordes of women going oh, to good. That. Okay. <laughs> 52% of my population are female and they're all at some point going to go through perimenopause at some point have some babies and this is where we need to empower women to understand their hormones a lot more which is brilliant like podcasts like this but also uh, so that you've got an actual clinician who works and this is embedded in research and it's evidence-based data and then secondly we need to empower pharmacists as well so we can't just think of the GP being the the be-all and end-all that is able to empower you. A lot of my pharmacists are fabulous so at the moment They have a specific criteria. So any postmenopausal woman who's having symptoms of vaginal atrophy or genital urinary syndrome or the menopause can go and get it from their pharmacy. So please never hesitate, go. You don't need to go Mm -hmm. on to your GP. If you're younger in your perimenopausal age at the moment, just because of guidance, and again, I think we should relax this guidance, um, is that you can go to your uh, GP first to have a discussion, have a
1: discussion with your midwife. If you're a younger woman taking, don't even get me started on on the pill. Is there an interaction on the hormone levels there? Is there any need to see a GP to say, look, I'm on the pill? Because I I can't tell you how many teenage girls I encounter who are going through hell with this.
2: So topic of vagina oestrogen in regards to younger women and oral contraceptive pill, you will need to have that discussion just because the pharmacist isn't licensed to give it over the counter to you. But in regards to the interaction between the estrogen and in the combined oral contraceptive pill and say Vagifem or GINA, which is the vaginal estrogen, actually no, because they're completely different derivatives and forms. And we know from lots of data that Asian women go through menopausal symptoms a lot earlier than their white counterparts. So up to maybe two to five years earlier than their white counterparts. And it's not likely to get urinary tract infections. But I know I'm heading towards perimenopause and it's not like it suddenly happens. It's a very insidious drip by drip effect. Mm. And I got three urinary tract infections in the space of six months, which I managed and some of them I self-treated by getting over-the-counter antibiotics. Even for me to join up all the dots, I realized, oh, it happens just before I'm due to start a period. I think this is definitely because it's a drop in estrogen. But actually it's been a massive game changer for me. And so I think that's the thing. If you had known, Lorraine, or if you'd been able to advocate, if he understood our hormones a lot better, I think that's the frustration of it all. The amount of angst and pain and embarrassment and loss of earnings, time of work, ability to socialise, all of those things that get impacted, which we take for granted. But you only realise that when you are suffering with, say, a UTI, because a UTI, like you feel rotten absolutely rotten and it's so undignified mm. like it's not something you can tell people as well oh yeah i've got a urinary tract infection
1: yeah i mean i've spent nights sleeping on the floor in the loo and i've been to a and e three times with i've had kidney infections i mean and it's we have a whatsapp group for the the women that i know who go through
0: <laughs> it's just horrific i think we should move on to periods i mean that's probably a whole other <laughs> two hours of discussion <laughs> We could talk to you for hours niggas So I'm learning so much, even though we've been covering this for a long time, I'm still learning the whole UTI thing, fascinating. But periods, again, I just think women really struggle with this during their menopause because you have this idea that, oh, it'll just get lighter, it will just get less, and then it will just stop. And of course, that isn't what happens. And women can end up with incredibly painful periods, very long periods. They're all over the place. And I love in your book, because it's aimed at young girls, women, every age that you talk about the fact that there is no normal with periods and they can just do all sorts of different things. But in midlife in particular, at what point do you think I really need some help here? What kind of help can I get?
2: Any point that your periods are impacting your quality of life, that's when you need help. I don't mind if they are too heavy, too light. It's anything that's impacting your life because you know what your normal is. That's why I think it's so important to learn to track your symptoms and know what your periods are from a really young age. Bearing in mind, not everybody is going to have the normal perfect period because you could have endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibroids, polyps. You can end up having sort of PCOS. So we always forget about PCOS as well and the perimenopausal journey. Birth trauma can impact your periods as well. Stress, anxiety, underactive thyroid condition. I mean, the lists just completely go on. On what can impact your cycle. So therefore, anything that's going to impact your life, that's when I need to hear from you as a GP.
1: So the other thing I think that comes into your book, which you and you say it on telly, and you, you're just brilliant, you're out there, you're saying self-examination, super, super important. Know your body and your vulva and your vagina and your breasts well. So how do we do that? When do we start? And how often do we examine ourselves?
2: As soon as possible, when you are like eight, nine, because now I'm seeing nine-year-olds coming in with periods, et cetera, who've started their periods, and that's mm-hmm. considered normal because obviously we're, we're sort of becoming a fitter, healthier nation. And I would say that as mums and dads, we have our responsibility to teach our babies about their bodies and not be embarrassed about it so, and use the correct terminology because the data time and time again shows that if you use correct terminology, anatomical terminology then the risk of say abuse particularly sexual abuse decreases and you're able to find it out far quicker i would love to go into manufacturing with one of the dragons to actually get a proper mirror that you can use because there is no mirror that i can find that to have a look at your vulva tissue at the moment so if anyone's listening i want to go into market with dr Negat about like formulating a sort of Volvo mirror, then that would be amazing. Because uh, learning about your anatomy, becoming less to be around it, no young is too young. I mean, I've got nieces who are five and six and I use anatomical words with my nieces about them when I have them. And they're more precious to me, I would say, than my three sons.
1: And that you're doing it to see what's changing and what's normal for you so that when you go to the doctor, you can say this has happened and it's not normal for me.
2: Absolutely. Because The only person, and I keep saying this, who will know you the best is you and the best person to advocate for you is going to be you. From my clinical experience as a doctor, if you trust your body and you think, right, this is the difference between what I'm used to but now this has changed, means that as doctors we should be listening to you and trusting you and so there's a less risk of gaslighting. Not that I'm saying that it doesn't happen. It definitely, unfortunately, still happens. Read any articles or papers about medical gaslighting, it happens. But I'm more likely to believe a woman telling me this is what's happening and this is what she's been tracking than what's written in a textbook, if that makes sense. Mm.
0: And that sort of knowing yourself, and we were talking about periods and it becoming a problem, is, again, women... Being told they need to have a hysterectomy. That is such a huge thing to get your head around, or even to think, actually, I'd prefer to have a hysterectomy than to be living with this. At what point or how do you come to the decision that actually a hysterectomy is what's needed and the best thing for me? I've
2: had a lot of these conversations with my patients over the years, and it's usually a conversation of, say, two minds. So the patient um, having autonomy and understanding the reasons why a hysterectomy would be more beneficial than keeping their womb. There are lots of different reasons why hysterectomy is necessary. Uh, Fibroids being the biggest reason. Um, It could be endometriosis, severe endometriosis, which is debilitating. Adenomyosis, which is affecting them as well. And also, I would even put into the mix choice as well. If you've got problematic, Mm -hmm. annoying periods, women do have a choice to have a hysterectomy. Sometimes there are emergency reasons why we would do a hysterectomy, uh, cancers being one, birth trauma being another one, accidents being another one. The thing that I think that saddens me about hysterectomies is that because we have such little research in endometriosis, adenomyosis and fibroids, uh, we're just like, let's whip out the organ. Let's not do more research into this. So the end stage for any woman with any of the major gynecological issues, which gives her issues with sort of problematic periods is well let's whip it out and we don't do that for any other condition we don't say do you know what your kidneys being a problem let's whip out your kidney, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though you've got two kidneys but it always frightens me and I suppose this is sort of a woman-to-woman answer rather than a clinician answer that we are still so low in regards to medical management that the only result that we can give a woman is surgical management and mm-hmm. just say to her right we'll whip out a whole organ just because this is becoming a problem for you. Saying that it's life-changing and it's life-giving to so many of my patients who've had their womb removed because the life that they had before was not worth sort of living at all. And I'm always an advocate for not just survival, but women thriving. So it's, they're very difficult choices.
1: Can I ask quickly about antidepressants? Because this has been a huge controversy for women asking for hrt and there is a sense that in america particularly there's a lot of research going on why are so many women over 40 on antidepressants it's a it's an overprescription epidemic in america and i think that we hear it all the time i've been offered antidepressants i was offered antidepressants twice before hrt what do we do if our gp says actually you need antidepressants not hrt what's our where do we find a voice and when are they appropriate because i think they are obviously appropriate for some women
2: And I agree with you. They are appropriate. And I use them in combination for a lot of my patients. And in some of my patients, I might actually use antidepressants before I use, say, HRT. It's really variable because for me, the number one thing is always choice, patient choice. But if you are being offered antidepressants and that's not what you want over HRT and you know as a patient, hormones is what I need because I'm in that perimenopausal, menopausal phase of my life, then I would say use the NICE guidance. In 2019, the NICE guidance was updated. And it's really clear that hormone replacement therapy is first line, not antidepressants. And here's the thing, you get this, the hormone replacement therapy is first line, even for psychological symptoms of the menopause. I have a, a real scope where I look at, marginalized communities, and if you look at marginalized communities, say Black and Nation, the uptake of hormone replacement therapy is only 1% to 2% compared to mm. their white counterpart. And that's because that old uh, information is still hanging around because marginalized communities get secondhand information, which mm. is done through word of mouth or storytelling. And it has to come from individuals like us as ambassadors or who look at the data to advocate for our communities in the language and the nuances that we know how best to communicate with our mm-hmm. with our groups mm-hmm.
0: and that's kind of where your career has has gone isn't it because also you're a practicing gp but you are on tv all the time um as a muslim woman talking about these topics very openly very knowledgeably are you seeing an impact within your communities
2: i am it happened again completely by mistake because i never wanted to be on tv in fact, <laughs> when Lisa, Lisa Kelly and I, who is the producer of BBC Breakfast, we were just reminiscing because it's three years since I've been doing BBC Breakfast and this morning. And she goes, do you remember when I rang you to come and talk about menopause on the sofa and you said no? And I said, I, I did. And the only reason I ended up coming on the sofa because you offered me makeup. And I was like, I'm there. <laughs> like, free makeover. Like, that's it. I, I get very little in the NHS. And that was really the start of it. I did six minutes on the sofa talking about stuff that I thought was really normal, but obviously opened up a whirlwind because the conversation around menopause is very white European centric. I speak to a lot of women in the mosque and they still say to me, oh, menopause, we don't get that. White women get menopause. And you're like, what is this conversation? like?" And then you speak to the women and you realize that their concept of their symptoms is so different to what's on the nhs website so if you say to a woman and i said this to my mother in fact who was having a florid hot flush by the way so she's making chapatis and i'm talking to her in the kitchen as you would do if you were talking to your daughters or sons in the kitchen and she had a hot flush and it was like a florid hot as she break and i said Mum, i think the way you're feeling is a hot flush, but she described it as kafki. Khafki is translated very loosely into palpitations. And I said to her, no, 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 that's not palpitations. You're actually having a hot flush. And she just went, darling, stand in the heat in Pakistan. You will know what a flush is. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, the context of the symptoms for the women to express them to the GP is based on their lived in experience. They've had it far worse. So in my language, in Punjabi, I have no word for menopause, but I lie. I do, but it's really horrible. In Punjabi, it's kapre katamogi, which is translated as you're off the rag. It's banji. So banji is translated as barren, which also isn't what perimenopause or menopause means. And in Arabic, the direct translation of menopause in Arabic is the age of despair. (laughs) So depressing. There's nothing like fun and vibrant and gorgeous it's this sort of ability to reinvent yourself and I think the Chinese have it in the right way because they see it as a second spring but actually everything is seen as dark and ugly and despairing when you hit menopause so women have never developed a lexicon to be able to describe this amongst themselves in their communities and if it's done it's done in very harsh tones and it's almost like well we have to sort of not talk about this. And if you look at sort of most Muslim marriages, and if you look at sort of Bangladesh or sort of say third world countries where men still practice polygamy, so it's not just one marriage, they're allowed to have up to five wives. It's even more reason not to talk about perimenopause and menopausal symptoms because then we'll go and get another wife because he'll
1: have heirs and spares. I'm very mindful that you have an appointment. <laughs> you have to go, <laughs> don't you? So I just want to say thank you for your book and also for the bravery of going on on TV and particularly social media because it's a difficult place to be for any women, <laughs> particularly women from other cultures. So thank you so much for that. Just thank you for everything. And I, we could talk to you for hours because oh, yeah. you are so knowledgeable. And I think everything you said today in this podcast will help hundreds, maybe thousands of women because we have thousands of women listening every week. So, Nigat, thank you so much. Enjoy your day and just keep doing what you're doing. And me and Trish, we're here for you. Postcards from Midlife is here for you. I know. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's a real
2: honour and uh, um, we can't leave it another three years. So my next thing on the cards is a face-to-face meeting at some point.
0: I mean, we've been talking about this stuff for five years now i learnt even more from dr It just shows what un, a sort of unexplored area this whole thing around mi- women's health especially utis i thought that was so yeah. fascinating i think i
1: overshared but she is an absolute <laughs> beacon of knowledge oh, Nigat. Yes. and we really need more medics out there on the front line don't we now she's only 40 Nigat. <laughs> we're not we're in our 50s we're nostalgia noodling back in time, yes. aren't we? Um and also we've got a new little bit, haven't we? I Did Not Know That,
0: which we link yes. to our nostalgia noodle. What did you not know? So there I was Saturday night on the sofa watching I love those BBC compilations of where they do like artists at the BBC, you know, and they show you all the old clips. And the one that I was watching had the old grey whistle test. And I was like, oh my goodness, the old grey whistle test. And I was thinking I always thought that was really fuddy duddy and old, but actually it really wasn't because <laughs> it had cool. everyone. It was really cool. Ran from 1971 to 1988, it had everyone David Bowie, John Lennon, the Smiths, R.E.M., everyone on there. But what didn't I know? What don't we know? Why is it called the old grey whistle test? Do you know? Little known fact about Lorraine Candy. Go on. Don't tell me you've been on the Old I used to test. work on
1: Music Week magazine occasionally. Oh, okay, right. Uh, a friend of mine I went I did an NCTJ course with went to, on to edit it and in between mm. my tabloidy bits and before I went on to magazines I used to just write the odd thing for Music Week and okay. you know it's a trade magazine so yes. it's all about the back. So I so I do know. But what did you find out Trish did it it, it makes militant a bit cross obviously the old grey whistle
0: test. Oh, does it? Okay. Well, I'm wondering if you've got a different definition. And so the one I heard was that it was to do with Tin Pan Alley. So back in like whenever the 20s and 30s, when they first started making records, they would play them uh, at clubs to the guys on the door, the doormen who wore these grey suits. And if they started whistling them, they knew they would ah. have a hit on their hands. So a record would have the old grey whistle test. So how does that upset Militant? Did well, it upsets upset Militant it?
1: because it's asking two men again. Oh, right. To, yes. to, 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 for our whole benchmark of whether something is good, popular, yes. we'll be we listened to. Okay. It's based on
0: two men in grey suits, which is basically the story of my life. Oh, Two older true. men in grey suits. <laughs> exactly. And that was Donkey's years ago. I don't know whether any women ever presented the old grey whistle test. It was always men. Wasn't Would it Janice Powell not have presented it at some point?
1: Maybe God rest her soul. Dude,
0: I don't know. And then I did like the logo. You know, it was that sort of outline of, I think it's a man, I have to say, kicking <laughs> in, like, in outlined in stars. Yes. You can buy that on a t shirt if you want Lorraine. Do you want me to get you that for your birthday? Like as the book well. you want me as to as get well you, last the
1: Andrew yes. book?
0: No, not the Andrew, the Column Tobin. You weren't listening. Oh, I wasn't listening to you. No. Well, you no. do you go on and on a bit. Oh. Right. Well, that's it. I'm calling an end to proceedings right now. It's the end of the show. Um, we hope you all enjoyed it and we hope you all learn something as we did from Dr. Nigat Arif. You can find us in all the usual places on Facebook, on Instagram, website, got an email, it's all going on. So uh, we hope you can join us next week as well. Goodbye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen